Thank you. If your Bibles are open to the book of Exodus tonight, an unusual place to begin a message about the Lord's Supper, but I think you'll see that it all fits in just a moment. For 400 years, God's people, the Israelites, had been slaves in the country of Egypt. They had served with hard bondage. They had come across the Pharaoh who tried to wipe them out and did several vile things trying to uh, end the Jewish race once and for all. And then God raised up a deliverer for them, a man by the name of Moses. Moses came back and in the power of God, he issued the decree to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. And of course, Pharaoh said, I'm, I don't know you and I don't know the Lord. I'm not going to listen to you. And so God began to bring a series of plagues on the nation of Egypt. The water turned to blood. Their houses and the land was filled with frogs from one end to the other. There were thunders and lightnings. There was, there was hail. There was lice. There were flies and locusts. And on and on it went. And we, we, we assume as we walk through the Bible timeline that this whole process took many, many months. God giving Pharaoh chance after chance after chance to do the right thing and yet his heart was hardened over and over and over again. In chapter 11, in verse 1, the Lord said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh. Please understand that God will deal with us, but there certainly comes a time when God draws a line in the sand and said, You better understand this is it. There had already been nine plagues and there was about to become the tenth one and God said, this will be the last one. Afterwards, he will let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. God said down in verse number four, uh, Moses said, thus say the Lord about midnight. Will I go out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne even under the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill and all the firstborn of beasts, there should be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And so God said, here's the last plague. He said, about midnight I'm coming by, and I'm going to smite the firstborn of every household in the land of Egypt, and the firstborn will die. But God made a promise to the Israelites that it, it was going to be different for them. And it wasn't just because they were the, the seed of Abraham. God was going to put a plan into place for them. We read about that plan in chapter 12 with Brother Carson. The Bible said, and if you'll just uh, bear with me, um, it, look at verse 1 again. The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. The household be too little for the lamb. Let him and his neighbor next unto us, his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. 
Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. They shall take of the blood and, may, and strike it on the two side posts, on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. So the instructions were given. Every household was to take a lamb. Of all the animals that, that God could have chosen, he could have chosen none that were more harmless and uh, more trusting um, and, and uh, more lovable than a little lamb or they could bring in a baby goat. It had to be under a year's age. It had to be a male. It had to be a perfect lamb. Uh, no blindness, no sickness, no weakness of any kind. It had to be just this perfect little lamb. It's a thing of beauty. It's the kind of thing a lamb will naturally snuggle into you. A, a lamb will naturally uh, be, be uh, brought to you. Uh, they, don't, they don't bite. They don't kick. They, they're, they're just a very trusting, uh, sweet, if you will, little innocent animal. They were to keep that lamb for four days. Possibly it was to, to watch the lamb to make sure that it really was as healthy as could be. But on the 14th day in the evening, they were to take that tiny, innocent little lamb and they were to kill it. They would slit its throat. They would capture the blood as it came out. And those last little cries were going out. They'd capture the blood in a basin. And while the body of the lamb is being skinned out and being prepared to be roasted, that blood would be taken in the bowl and they take some hyssop weed, which is common weed that grew everywhere. They would use that as somewhat of a crude paintbrush and the dad would go outside of his house and on each side of the door on the outside, he'd use that, that uh, blood of that little lamb as paint up, and up the sides and across the top. And if there was any left, they dug a little trench right in front of the door and they'd pour the remainder of the blood there it was a gruesome sight. The beauty and the innocence of that tiny little lamb is now marred by death. God said, about midnight, I'm going to come over the land of Egypt. And as God did so, the angel was going to pass by, and anywhere he saw the blood, the death angel would just pass by, and everybody inside that home was safe. The firstborn would not die, neither of man or of beast, but if the blood was not there, that home would suffer the death of the firstborn. I told you God made a plan. But the Israelites had to make a decision of whether or not they trusted God's plan. And we know from Scripture, I, I don't know of any Israelite, there's no record in the Bible of any of them that disobeyed God on this one. And that night, the death angel passed over and the Egyptians had such a great, great disaster Pharaoh's uh, firstborn son died. By the way, it didn't matter if that son was 40 years old or four months old or four days old. The firstborn would die in that house. It happened in Pharaoh's house. It happened in his, his servant's house. It happened to those who were in prison uh, that, that uh, ignored God's challenge on this. And there was a cry that went up throughout all the land of Egypt. And God's people that night, the Passover, marked the end of their slavery. It was the night of their deliverance. And that night, Pharaoh would call Moses in and said, enough, get out of here. The people of Egypt said, we all be but dead men. Get out of our country. They loaded them down with silver, gold, anything that they wanted and sent them out of the land in haste. It was a great deliverance. 
But God did not want this to be something that happened once and then they forgot about it. God said, this is going to be the beginning of your calendar. And every year on this exact date, on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish year, you're going to remember this Passover. You're going to take a lamb. They never again had to take the blood and put it up the sides of the door and across the top. That was a one-time deal. But every year they were supposed to do that and it's been done for over 3,000 years. And our Jewish friends call it the Passover. The Passover is celebrated about the same time that we celebrate Easter. The Jewish calendar only has 360 days in a year and so um, uh, it, it, it's not quite the same as ours and that's why Easter falls at a different time every year because it's measured out based on when is the Jewish Passover as how it relates to our calendar. But you understand for nearly 3,500 years on the same night, all, all around the world, the Jewish people, uh, they're, they're, they're getting a, a lamb, they're roasting it, they're sitting down with their families, and they've got a beautiful ceremony that has, that has not wavered or varied very much at all in 3,500 years. And they gather together, and they remember that remarkable night that God delivered Israel from their bondage. Keeping that thought in mind, can you turn to the gospel of Mark chapter 14? God said, this will be a memorial to you. Mark chapter 14. We're going to fast forward about 13 to 1500 years. And notice if you would please in Mark 14 in verse number 12. And the first day of unleavened bread when they killed the what? Passover. His disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? He sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the goodman of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared, there make ready for us. His disciples went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. So the Savior is that night, sharing the Passover meal like his ancestors had done for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. The Passover celebration, even in today's day, is not a simple ceremony. We can observe the Lord's Supper, and I've been in churches where the entire Lord's Supper takes about maybe 10 minutes and then they move on with other things. I generally, if you've been around here any length of time, have never done it that way. We build our entire service around it. Because I think we need to take a step back and remember what the Lord did for us on the cross of Calvary. The Passover celebration today is about a three to four hour process. 
The father of the house is generally the host and he is in charge of everything. There's a procedure of lighting candles, of placing everything out on the table. And the children and the grandchildren are gathered around and, and uh, they, they, they uh, hand out various items of food and so forth. And the father goes into an explanation of what happened in Exodus chapter 12 with that first Passover night. They'll spend a long time and he'll tell the story. Sometimes he'll ask the children questions and see what they remember uh, from their studies and so forth about the Passover because to the Jewish people, this was the night that began their history in a lot of ways. And, and they, they hold it dear to them and they realize our God told us never forget what happened on that night. So we can envision the Savior as the host of the meal, doing the same thing with his disciples, he knows that the next day he will be going to the cross. They don't understand that yet, even though he's been trying to tell them, it's not registering with them, but there he is observing, observing the Passover with them. At the end of the Passover meal, after they've eaten the lamb and the vegetables and all those other things, there has been set aside during the Passover celebration a simple piece of unleavened bread and one small cup of wine. It's been set aside. They've actually taken that unleavened bread and in the sight of the children, uh, they, they run the bread through the flame of one of the candles that has been lit on that table and it makes black marks across it, sometimes in a checkerboard type fashion. They take that piece of unleavened bread and they fold it up in a napkin. Sometimes uh, they will take that and they will hide it somewhere uh, in the home and the children will later go out and see who can find it. And uh, there'll be a little prize for the one who does, but they'll hand it, handle it very carefully and very reverently as they bring it back. Just before the Passover meal was concluded, the father will take that, that napkin and he'll unfold it and he'll hold up that piece of bread. It is unleavened bread, leavened to the Jewish people and according to the Bible is a picture of sin. And on the Passover, they were not allowed to have any leaven anywhere in their house whatsoever. He will point out to them that that bread has been pierced. He will point out to them that that bread has gone through the fire and it now has what looks like stripes on it. He has no idea in the modern Jewish mind how prophetic his words are. By his stripes, we are healed. And he will hold that up and, and, and point out to them that what has taken place with that bread. He will offer one last prayer and then he will break the bread, see, notice how it is broken, and then he will hand it out and they will partake of it. That night in that upper room, as the Savior sat with his disciples, verse 22, as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and break it and gave to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. This was never done before. This was never been part of the Passover, but that night the Savior is instituting a brand new memorial within a memorial. And he's telling them, I want you to understand this bread that is pierced 
and striped and broken. He said, I want you to understand this is my body, which is broken for you. In the gospel of Matthew, he put uh, this do in remembrance of me. We don't believe for a moment that the bread we're going to partake of tonight somehow magically turns into the body of Christ. It's called the doctrine of transubstantiation. It is a heresy. Christ was sacrificed once and for all. Uh, We're not eating his body tonight. We're doing this in remembrance of his body that was broken for us. That cup of wine that was held back at the Passover, the Savior took that in verse 23 and he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it and he said unto them, this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung in him, they went out unto the Mount of Olives. This is the first time that it's ever happened, this broken bread that the Jewish people had been seeing from the time they were born. And all, all of a sudden, Savior said, I want you to understand that just like that little Passover lamb was killed in the days of Moses, I will be killed. I am the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. My body will be broken for you. My blood will be shed for you. Just like the the blood of the lamb was placed around that door after it was shed. He said, that's what I'm going to do for you. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writes to the church at Corinth who had abused and misused the whole the whole issue of the Lord's Supper. And he's reminding them what it's all about in verse 23. He said, for I've received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he brake it and said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. So the Lord instituted it, and we are not told how often we have to observe the Lord's Supper. I know good, solid, Bible-believing churches that that observe the Lord's Supper every Sunday. I know some that do it once a month. I know some that do it once a year. We try to do about once every quarter. My reason for that is I just don't want it to ever be ritual. I don't want it to be something that we just get so used to that we don't think about it anymore. The Savior did not mean it to be that way. He wanted it to be something very poignant for us. And so tonight we observe that, just like the Jewish people have been observing their Passover tonight, we are going to remember the Lord's death. We're going to remember what God has done for us. The the Lord's Supper is designed by God to stir our memories. This do in remembrance of me. In the front of my Bible that I preach from, um, I uh, I have the picture of my wife. And it's taped in there, and it's come out a couple times, and I just keep retaping, and it's there, and it's, it's kind of worn and so forth, but it's there. And since she's gone to heaven, I 
look at that picture. I won't say every day in this Bible, but I've got her picture in every room in my house. If you step into my study, you see, you'll see her picture. And no matter where you look, you'll see her picture somewhere. Uh, it's all over the place. And I look at the picture because, see, I don't have her with me right now. Um, she's in heaven right now. So I look at the picture and I'll remember her. My son sent me a, um, an audio file. It's three seconds long. It's on my phone. And it's, uh, it, I found out it somehow transferred automatically to my laptop. Years and years ago, uh, we had a ladies' conference here. How many remember Diana Gerber's skits? Greatest skit lady right in the world. I doubt if we could pay her to do any of those these days. But uh, she was getting, uh, she had just been introduced. And Diana, you had just walked through the door. You hadn't done anything yet. You hadn't said anything yet. This audio clip, all it was, was Trina laughing. How many remember the laugh? I've got it. I've got it. I listened to it this morning. I listened to it this afternoon. Just that, that, that few seconds of that laughter and, and just hearing it, I, just, I remember the joy that filled her life. Looking at the picture, just a thousand memories from our time together. Sometimes I'll look at my children and, and I'll, I'll see her in them uh, and all of those things. And uh, I do that because I don't want to forget the importance that she has in my life. God used her to change my life. God used her to enrich my life. And God does not want us to forget the death of Christ and treat it as if it was, yeah, I got saved, Jesus died on the cross for me and I moved on. God never wants us to get away from that. Interestingly enough, in heaven, there's not a lot of songs that you'll find recorded in heaven about the resurrection. Not that it's unimportant. That was the message of the book of Acts was the resurrection of Christ. You understand that the songs that we, we so often uh, identify with that are sung in heaven, worthy is the lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us to God out of every kindred, nation, and tongue. And, and several times in the book of Revelation, it's worthy is the lamb that was slain. And throughout heaven, we're going to remember that the reason we're there was because there was an old rugged cross where the lamb of God's body was broken to pay for our sin. Everything about the Lord's Supper is to stir our memories lest we forget what God has done. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to settle our minds. Can you turn to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8. Sometimes we struggle with matters of faith. We struggle with matters of trust. Romans 8, that great chapter of hope in the Bible. Verse number 31, notice what God says. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Does anybody know the answer to that? No one. If God be for us, who can be against us? Notice verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A God that would do that for us while we were yet sinners, will he not answer our prayers? Will he not stay close? Will he not take care of us? 
Will he, will he not meet our needs and lift our burdens and bring comfort to our hearts? This knowledge, this memory of the, of the cross of Christ should settle our minds once and for all. God loves me. He'll never stop loving me. I'm secure and safe in the love of God. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. The observance of the Lord's Supper, this memorial that the Savior started. This wasn't started by people. The celebration of Christmas is kind of a man-made thing. We're not even sure if Jesus was born December 25th. I don't argue it. I just like the presents send them to me. I think it's a wonderful thing to remember the, the, the birth of Christ. But do you, do you realize nowhere in the Bible are we told to, to celebrate Christmas? But you understand we are taught by the Savior himself. I want you to remember the cross. And I want you to remember it with some unleavened bread and some unleavened, unfermented juice. And I want you to remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed so that you could be saved. With that in our hearts and our minds, that should serve as our motivation to serve Christ. Very simply, the Bible says in verse 19 of 1 John chapter 4, we love him because he first loved us. God doesn't want us to be robots. God doesn't want us serving out of a sense of obligation or I have to. God doesn't want us serving him out of a sense of fear. Well, if I don't do that, God's going to pound me into the ground. God wants us to serve him because we love him. And why do we love him? Because he first loved us. He first loved us. Every time God's people gather together, whether it's a group of a few people in a house church in China or in a, in a great large uh, gathering or a simple gathering such as ours tonight, and we observe the remembrance of the Lord's Supper, it's a time for us to remember what God's done. It's a time to allow our minds to be settled and secure in the truth and the love of God. It's a time for us to be reignited in our motivation, a God that loves me that much. He is worthy of my praise. He is worthy of my devotion. He is worthy of my life. And that's what it's all about. So as we observe this in just a few moments, please do not just let it fly by. This is not just something that we do because we have to do this. Tonight, we're going to remember the most important event in human history. That a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, died on the cross to pay for our sins. Had he not done so, we wouldn't even be here. If he had not done so, we would be without hope. We would spend eternity in a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. But none of that is our reality if we're saved because... God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As we make ready in just a moment to receive the Lord's Supper, may I encourage you in a couple of things. Number one, do you know for sure that you were saved? If you are not saved, you are not to partake of the Lord's Supper. The Bible talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about those who partake of it unworthily. We'll never be worthy of the blood of Christ, but we can take it in an unworthy manner. When we receive the Lord's Supper, we're, we're remembering what Jesus did for us, but if you've not been saved, you haven't applied the blood. If you've not been saved, you need to take care of that and get that settled. 
Number two, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, we need to stop and make sure, am I right with God? The church at Corinth was so messed up. Some people were getting drunk at the, at the, the Lord's table uh, while others were starving. Some were, were, were just feeding their face like a bunch of gluttons and others just had nothing. It was, a, it was a horrible thing. And God said, because of this, some of you, many of you are sickly and weak and some of you even fallen asleep. You've passed away early because you've so defiled this. Before you and I partake of it, we need to take some time to make sure that we're right with God. In a moment, we'll bow our heads. We'll take a few moments of quietness. And you need to ask the Lord, Lord, is there anything between my soul and the Savior? Is there anything that I've not dealt with yet that I need to before I partake of this? You died to save me from my sins, not so I could continue in them. We need to make sure that we're right with God. We need to make sure that as much as possible, we're right with each other that we're right with each other? Is there anything between you and a brother and sister in Christ? Is there anything that you've not dealt with, anything that you've perpetuated? You understand if you partake of it and, and there's an issue there and you're even unwilling to deal with it, you're partaking unworthily and that's not right in the sight of God. This is a time to prepare ourselves and let, us, let the Lord draw us back to him. It's kind of like pushing the reset button pushing the reset button just to make sure that everything's right. I've told you before, the pastor under whom I got saved, Pastor Robert Nitz, I heard him say many, many times as a teenager, I keep short accounts with God. He would stop several times a day, Lord, have I said or done anything today so far that has displeased you? And if God brought anything to mind, he didn't justify it. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He dealt with it so he could be right with God. And if there's ever a time for us to do that, beloved, now's the time. We've been hearing a lot about the revival in Kentucky. How many know what I'm talking about? Facebook's burning up as to whether it's right, whether it's real or not. Uh, I'll let God decide on that. But you know, the thing that bothers me the most is not are they having revival in Kentucky, Am I having revival right here? Kentucky's a long way away. What's happening in Kentucky isn't about us. Are we having revival? Are, are we right with God? The Lord's Supper is supposed to bring us back to that place of, Lord, wilt thou not revive us again? Let us bow our head and close our eyes for a word of prayer.